Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleiman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. These are challenging times at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. In February of this year, Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt became EPA Administrator. As Oklahoma's top lawyer, Pruitt had sued the EPA more than a dozen times to block environmental protections. Now as agency head, he has called for cuts to EPA programs, sought to repeal the Clean Power Plan, and debunk science on climate change. Over the coming days, and possibly by the time this podcast goes live tonight on October the 4th, the EPA will announce its strategy to roll back the Clean Power Plan. How far might the current EPA leadership go in rolling back climate protections? And more fundamentally, can the EPA operate as an objective steward of the environment and public health in an era when politics, rather than science, increasingly appear to set its agenda? Here for discussion of the challenges facing the EPA is today's guest, former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, the Honorable Gina McCarthy. Gina, welcome to Energy Policy Now. It's good to be here, Andy. Thanks for having me. And you've kind of depressed me with your opening, so I hope we get more exciting as time. <laughs> Hopefully it'll get better as time goes on. Gina served as EPA administrator during President Barack Obama's second term. She's a guest this week here at the uh, Climate Center for Energy Policy to receive its annual Carnot Prize in celebration of her contributions to environmental policy and to securing a sustainable energy future during her tenure with the EPA. Gina, again, congratulations on receiving the Carnot Prize. That's uh, a great honor, it's, and uh, I'm very excited about it, and I'm excited to have this conversation. Now, you've been out of the EPA f- since the beginning of the year. What have you been up to since? Um, well, basically, it took me a couple of weeks to get all my stuff back home, and I started pretty, pretty quickly at Harvard University, which is right down the, the street for me, um, and I did a fellowship at the Kennedy School, Um, for a couple of months, and I did a fellowship at the Harvard School of Public Health as well. Because I think one of the things that most people don't realize is that EPA is a public health agency. And and really, that that is – it's the intersect between environment and public health that is is has been my passion forever. Um, And so I've been excited to spend time with the students. You know, I see the same bright and interesting and engaging faces when I come here as well. So the greatest gift that you can have when you leave an administration like that, that I think has has done great work following the law and science and and to listen to all the rhetoric about rolling it back is to hang out with young people um, because they they share the same core values that that EPA is is trying to protect and was created for by Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. So if we can get away from this sort of partisan politics and rhetoric, I, I think EPA will be just fine. Uh, but I do worry about the young people and and them not realizing that shifts happen, but as long as we're active, uh, we will in the end uh, be able to sustain not just EPA, but the climate efforts that have become sort of a cornerstone of the work that we did over the past few years. Well, we're very happy to have you here, one, because of the, Cli- the, the Carnot Prize, and we're very happy to bestow that to you. And also because there's so much going on right now that involves the EPA as we're speaking right now. Now, the Clean Power Plan was the signature piece of uh, energy-related regulation that came out during your tenure as EPA administrator. The current administrator, Scott Pruitt, has, or over the coming days, will announce a plan to roll that regulation back. Mm -hmm. Why? 
Well, the, the this administration has has done, I think, what none before it has done, which is basically it came in and and rather than spend time talking to the career staff and understanding the issues, why we did things and looking at the transition documents that we spent time preparing for them, is they just simply announced that just about everything that we had done over the prior years was contrary to what they wanted to do and they're going to roll it back. It wasn't a, a you know thoughtful, educated approach to changing policy direction because, frankly, I haven't heard any direction forward, only a, a vision of how to get rid of, of what's happened. Um, and, and, and instead, they have announced and, uh, changes that they're going to make that would roll back a significant amount of rules, including the Clean Power Plan. Now, the Clean Power Plan, I believe, is one of the, the, the big wins that they'd like to roll back because it does a couple of things. Uh, one is it, it allows them to sort of continue the, the denial of climate science and that climate change is real. And it also allows them to continue with what I think is an unrealistic w- look at the world today mm-hmm. to think that they can roll it back and, and make you know, coal a much more productive and marketable uh, source of fuel in this country for whatever reason that is. You know, my assumption is it, it, it really works well with the folks who voted for this administration to make the claim that the energy can be turned back because we get rid of the clean power plan, when in reality the clean power plan was following the way the energy market was heading <laughs> not looking to make demands that would that would be contrary to reliable and and, and uh, affordable uh, energy, and the world's changed. I think they can talk all they want about the clean power plan and getting rid of that and other things, but you know the world the world's changed. We're not going to go back to where it used to be ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. People demand more of that, and I think the power plan was a the clean power plan was a a visionary rule in the sense that it didn't just continue with the energy market of today moving forward to more renewable energy, more energy efficiency, but it but it also set a really good window of opportunity for investment and certainty. That's what they're taking away that they don't realize would be will be hugely damaging to the business community and the strength of our economy moving forward. Now looking at forward at what might happen over the next few days or few weeks, what are the options for the EPA, for Administrator Pruitt, to roll the clean power plan back. Right. Well, one of the things that that give me comfort is that I don't think this administration is actually working with the career staff. I don't think they've done environmental governance before at this level. None of them, frankly, have expertise in this area. And what you're seeing is that they first originally announced rollbacks, tried to do it unilaterally. Three out of three times the court said, this is a process to follow. You're not following it. So they didn't understand the law. I've seen them put out a proposal to to basically – um, rescind the, the clean water rule. Some people call it the waters of the United States. I read that rule. It never articulated a single reason for 
the rule to be rescinded, all this uncertainty to begin again, except for President Trump issued an executive order demanding that they relook at this and use a different legal premise to argue uh, another strategy. And that premise has been basically rejected by nine circuit courts. Well, looking so, at that. so looking at that, I don't – so people need to know that they will propose something. Now, I understand that the courts have told them don't just try to get rid of the rule. You have to replace it. So the challenge that they're going to face is not only th- their weakness and lack of understanding of how you you have to prove a problem with science or the law or facts, like in the case of the clean water rule, in order for the courts to think it's a reasonable thing to do, you need to say, oops, a mistake was made. They haven't cited one. And in the case of the clean power plan, if they're not working with the staff on what to do to rewrite a rule as as complicated as this, then I feel quite certain that this is going to be tied up in the public process for a long time, as well as tied up in the courts for a lengthy review. So the public will have a chance to weigh in because the courts have reminded them that that's the process. And they better do a wing-dippy job. Uh, They are going to have uh, some challenges uh, that they're going to have to face, and it's going to be well beyond this administration in terms of when those issues are resolved. Well, looking at the legal issues for just a moment a little bit further, the EPA is required to regulate carbon emissions. It found in the endangerment finding several years ago that carbon dioxide greenhouse gas emissions are a hazard to human health. Thus, it is obligated to, re- to regulate the, uh, those emissions. So it can't just say, let's take it all away. There has to be some balance in there that satisfies that need to regulate those emissions, but somehow allows emitters to have more of what they want. Can that... Needle be thread? I, I, I think that the, the d- dilemma that the administration is going through is they'd rather just say deny climate science. They'd, I think they'd rather go look at the endangerment finding and say, oh, never mind. But the endangerment finding is is something that's been challenged all the way to the Supreme Court. And it's been challenged many times. They're not going to be able to make that proof. So I think they don't want to relive that. They'd rather have rhetoric about how climate change isn't real and we shouldn't be doing anything because we can't fix the planet. And instead, they'd rather now just admit to not attacking that and, and, and design a very weakened rule. Now, they're going to have to, they're going to have a heavy lift in a redesign that is going to pass muster with the courts, where the court, the D.C. Circuit has in front of it a rule that that they've recently done more reviews, including the American Petroleum Institute, which says that it's even cheaper to actually comply with this rule. They're going to have to explain why, if states are already at the, the first compliance level in 2022 in terms of reductions, and they're already achieving them in states like, you know, Ohio, North Carolina, states that were suing the EPA saying it's unreasonable for already there. What, what is it that we're trying to correct? You know, the, the court's responsibility in this is, is to really look, look at the law, but also, I think, to recognize that you need to actually provide certainty 
to people. These rules don't come easy. They're hard to do, and rightly so. We may complain about it while we're the ones doing it, but when someone threatens to take it away, you sort of celebrate it. It is a slow and deliberate process. And there's reasons for that, because the rules are meant to stay. They're meant to be thoughtful and to be legal and based on science and fact. And for somebody to come in and claim that it's a policy issue when it would, will fundamentally have to be a rule of law issue, a science issue, a fact-based issue, they're using the, the, I think they're using a rollback strategy that the courts will reject because they will want to know why you're going to turn the world on its head. And the utility world doesn't want it, and the car industry now doesn't want even what they asked for because they know that the transportation sector is moving forward. They have to get with the program. You know, clean energy is it. That's, that's where we're headed, and the challenge of climate change demands that we invest now in technology of the future, not roll back to something that existed before and try to figure out how to make it marketable again. That's just not going to work. In the immediate future, it looks like we're going to have several years of ambiguity around this issue as it works its way through the courts. Um, what kind of moves do you expect from the electric power industry to address or not address carbon in the interim? And what impact may this have on the trajectory for reduction of carbon emissions from that industry? Look, unless they, unless they do something, you know, which I think they're contemplating doing but I don't think will work, that will marry rules in the energy world to, to actually support continued use of inefficient and highly expensive coal units that, ha- that the private sector had been planning uh, to discontinue in favor of cheaper and, and better generators like renewable energy or, or, or uh, natural gas, unless they do that, this, putting this rule up for grabs is not going to change the way the utility world is actually investing. If you look at it, clean energy is, is, going, is continuing to progress because the utility world has already understood that it is the future and they are buying the cheapest electricity they can buy and integrating it into their system as one would actually hope from an environmental and public health perspective. So as soon as the market in, continues to embrace new opportunities for even cleaner, you will see us getting better and better, regardless of whether this this rule is is it continues to remain uh, uncertain. But what you will miss again is that really strong investment signal out to 2030 that I think is necessary and that I, I regret this administration sort of intervening in that, in that area because I just think young people might think that the opportunity is not there. But so I, I'm not really concerned that that the rollback of the clean power plan or the discussion of that is going to change the way the clean energy market is moving now. I'm just worried that we're going to lose to China. We're going to lose to India. We're going to lose to other countries to actually do the innovation and get the jobs and the economic resources associated with that. I'm worried that President Obama's fear that that the, the countries that, that embrace – you know, clean energy are going to be the winners in the world economy is actually going to come true and we're not going to be it. That's what I worry about. 
Um, but cities and towns are being cool. They're, they're doing everything they need. They know the world hasn't changed. So while the U.S. is asleep at the federal level, you got great action at the state and, and, and uh, local level. You got cities going crazy, uh, just recognizing that, that people care about climate change and, and want clean energy. Um, and you got the business community speaking very loudly. Unfortunately, this administration has been deaf to their pleas. But business knows that, that it's, it's time. Uh, the world's changed. We got to go with it. You, you talked a moment ago, ago about incentives, economic incentives that are pushing forward renewable energy, clean energy. Yeah. I have to bring up an issue. This has been a really big week in energy policy. Uh, as you know, Rick Perry, uh, the head of the Department of Energy, issued uh, uh, essentially a request to the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, I think it was late last week, earlier this week, basically looking to provide incentives for coal-fired power plants and nuclear power plants to keep them as base load capacity. This would seem like a threat to any move, specifically at, at the market level, to any moves to decarbonize the electric system. Yeah. What might the impact that, of that be? And also I wanted to ask what is the coordination or lack thereof between DOE and EPA on these issues? Well, here's the, you know, I, I don't, I can't answer that because I don't know who's talking to whom. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I really wasn't aware of it until very recently. I was aware that Secretary Perry was, was sending signals that he thought maybe reliability would be threatened because you didn't have coal as a base load in every state and it was being diminished as a, a core part of how you deliver energy. And I knew that the, the, the nuclear industry was worried because they, they were no longer able to compete because of market rules. So, so this, this is, I guess, shouldn't have surprised me, except that, that Secretary Perry asked DOE staff to take a look at this issue. And if you read the report, it really didn't support all this, this uncertainty that Secretary Perry was trying to say in terms of the impact of the shift to clean energy being a problem for reliability and affordability. And in fact, the market says it's just the opposite. And states say that too, because they're, you know, you've got Iowa and Texas who really are not the bastions of believing in climate change at, with the highest percentage of, of renewable resources in their portfolio. Hello. You know, there's a reason why. So this is what I meant by when I sort of caveated that unless they change the energy rules, it'll be fine. This is a direct threat to our ability to continue to invest in clean energy. It is it, – it, it is, I don't think it's going to work because I don't think the, the support is there. And I think you will see that it will raise energy costs considerably if anyone did this. But basically it says that if you have a coal facility that is outdated and is highly emitting, then anything you need to do to bring it up to snuff so you can be part of the baseload, consumers are going to pay for. The breathing public is going to pay for. So we're going to see more public health threats coming back on the market, um, it being fully you know, reimbursed by your energy consumers, you're going to see 
prices go up as a result of that. And I don't think people are going to want to see this analysis being done and see that being the consequences of it. So it is an absolute frontal attack. Uh, but I don't think the the specific sort of um, uh, rule that 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 allows the the secretary to make this type of a request and demand is was ever intended to be one which picked a winner over a more reliable and affordable system. That's what he's doing. He's picking winners that actually will diminish the ability for people to have reliable and affordable energy. I am a good communicator. I would not want the job of explaining that to the general public. Like to move on to the issue of climate science. Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) And that has been in the crosshairs of Administrator Pruitt. He has suggested the formation of a team of scientists whose job would be to question climate science, this proposed uh, red team, blue team. Would it be possible for a group of scientists to disprove consensus science on climate or on any other health issues from the inside out, from the EPA? No, no. You know, there's a process that science follows. And, you know, this administration is is doing an all-out attack on science. And I don't want people who are listening to think it's only about climate. It's everything. They are rolling back clean air rules. They are rolling back clean water rules. As I mentioned earlier in, in an earlier interview, they're rolling back chemical safety rules. I mean, you name it. They want to get the federal government out of the business of protecting public health by lowering risks and exposures to pollution. Why, I don't know, because our job's not done. But but he is attacking it by looking at the, the agency itself and trying to cut half of our scientists. He is closing science labs as we speak that have no ability to be taken up because the expertise isn't at the state level. You know, Andy's questioning fundamentally the science of, of climate change. He's not going to win uh, on, on the stra- strategy he's taking because even folks in Congress know that their constituents would like clean air and clean water. That's not rocket science and it's not climate science. But he also is trying to change the, the peer review process of how the agency does its business. So it is an all-out attack on science. And it's also an, a, a direct attack on climate change. And he uses his, his, his vision as a back-to-basic strategy. That's the first time I've ever heard a vision being, you know, let, let's move back to what used to, to happen a long time ago. And that's a euphemism for let's not do climate change anymore. Um, and, and unfortunately, the law doesn't give you that luxury as we've talked about. And the endangerment finding that made it appropriate for EPA to regulate in a variety of sectors, the, the power plants, the car sector, the trucks, the landfills, the oil and gas extraction process, all of those were based on the hottest science that we have. And this red team, blue team idea is, is, is nothing short of ludicrous. You know, it, there is... There there's, there's no debate like that that has credibility in science. The only thing he's trying to do is is do some one-on-one debate where a, 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 a scientist that denies climate change is given stature that doesn't belong. 
you know, he's just trying to elevate the 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 voice of climate deniers, which we know is a is a minimal voice at best in the science of climate. We know that it's real. You know, we know it's happening and we just have to move on. So it's just it's it's ridiculous. You know, in he he was going to do it as a televised program. Wouldn't it be exciting to listen to uh, a, a science panel, debate? Right? Was that what it's yeah, yeah, it was. It's it's ridiculous. You know, he's not a game show host and it's not going to compete against Game of Thrones. So let's get off it. Let scientists do their work. His job isn't to question science. It's to apply science using the law and sound policy. That's what it is. They're mixing politics and science and it's a dangerous game. So if you're worried about them doing it in the world of climate, think about pharmaceuticals. Are they going to start deciding science there as well? It is a dangerous game. One other issue, this may be a thorn in the side of the president and of the administrator. Um, There is a climate science special report that is supposed to be released in November This climate science special report is part of the congressionally mandated national climate assessment that comes out every four years. Uh, The draft of this has been out since some time. The New York Times publicized it around the end of July, early August. And a quote from that draft report is that evidence for a changing climate abounds. The report also says humans are the cause. This report was put together by 13 government agencies. It came from the federal government itself. What will the White House do, the EPA do with this report? Well, you know, what I'm finding is that that the strategy that that seems to be unveiling is that if they don't want to do something, if if the end result of that is not consistent with their political rhetoric – they, they simply delay it. They just don't finish it. And I think that's the very thing that worried the scientists who did this report was that they didn't want it buried and not be able to have the public see the information they needed to understand the threat that climate poses and why we need to sort of restore climate adaptation efforts and resiliency efforts rather than to dismantle those things, take climate science off of EPA's website because it's under development, tell us the agencies that they shouldn't be thinking of climate change when they spend federal infrastructure dollars it's it's sort of uh, it's contrary to common sense to to actually just bury these types of reports and then pretend that the scientists don't know what they're talking about and make decisions totally contrary to that decisions at risk you know not just public health but really the future um, and uh, future of our kids and I, I resent that you know, I resent the fact that they can't treat science the way science should be treated, recognize the breadth of understanding we have of climate science now and the threat that it poses. And, and, and to say that at times when we're having unprecedented hurricanes and forest fires, that we should somehow not use that as an opportunity to talk about climate change and why that's important, and the risks associated with these more intense storms. I, 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 and so I really have to recognize that, that uh, this, this, 
this administration would like you to think that climate science is up in the air and that the only thing standing between you know us and and continued economic prosperity is getting rid of EPA. You know, you got to look at the range of the 13 agencies that pull that together. Mm-hmm. EPA had a piece, but it's NASA. It's NOAA. It is the National Institutes of Health. Those agents, everyone spoke with a unified voice. And for us to deny the ability for the United States of America to do a, a science well is, is, uh, is uh, certainly contrary to, I think, what you and I believe and, and want to believe and will continue to believe. I hope that report comes out. It's going to be interesting to see the contortions that go on, uh, uh, you know, around it. No, Andy, it yeah, one of my favorite parts of that report, and people should at least read the introduction to that report because it's, it's pretty hard-hitting in terms of stating things with the clarity that, that you just stated. But one of the things it said is that human beings are at this point, uh, let me paraphrase it, cre- uh, undergoing an experiment, with our planet. <laughs> We're just doing something that's never been done before, that the human beings cannot adapt to a changing climate with the, with the time constraints that we are facing, how quickly it's changing. And I think it was intended to be a wake-up call. And that call should be heard by everybody here, which is why you need to take actions that we have available to us that make sense from an energy and an economic perspective. We need to be part of the international effort to work together with our business community and states and cities and people around the world to actually address this issue. People should have the right to read that report. Gina, I have to ask you, uh, with all the experience that you have at the EPA, mm-hmm. There are thousands of people there that are dedicated to good science and doing good work. What do you think the mood inside the EPA is right now, number one? And number two, what is the nature of the relationship between the leadership of the EPA and the many people who work there? Yeah. Well, um, I I think we're going through unusual, very unusual times at at EPA, and you'll hear that from Republican administrators. This is – no one's ever had the sense that the administrator of the agency actually wasn't proposing a vision that would advance its mission (laughs) as opposed to come in and let's just take back – the, the progress Rip that we have that made, it, yeah, yeah. So it's so it's 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 unusual. It's highly unusual to have the administrator so isolated from the career staff, because the career staff, many of them, have been through a number of of changes, and they understand that policy change is okay. People vote for different people with different ideas about how to move the country forward. But they've, they've never been, you know, excluded from conversations and told that that educational opportunity isn't necessary. Even when you have an administrator who has literally no experience in environmental law or the environmental world with the exception of suing the agency 14 times. And that so it's just it's unconscionable that they are kept out of the discussions because they do their job. They'd explain how you how you actually use their 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 
interest in a political shift and how you get it done in ways that are legally solid that follow the science. The only thing I can suspect is they're well aware that whatever they're trying to do is not consistent with the law or science. So they're basically his, his entire sort of office area, my understanding, and I have not been talking to staff at the agency because it would put them at risk. It's, it's locked up. You can't, the staff can't get in there. He's not getting the normal briefings that, that complex issues need, which is the staff does lots of work to give you lots of options, explain what the science is, explain what the law says, give you a ton of options. You start thinking about them and, and talking to them about it. You make decisions on the, that basis, not on the basis of science alone. Not on the basis of the law alone, but on the basis of what you believe is best for the public and, and using the science and the law as guideposts. But you can have a policy decision that's different. You can land in a different place and they support that. He has no understanding of the value they, they add to the dialogue, which is why I'm comfortable they won't get it right. <laughs> Because they're not really working with the staff. And it's hard, I'm sure, for the staff to see EPA, you know, being proposed to be cut by about a third and half of the people gone. And the outside comments that have been made about the agency, it's just disrespectful for them. And I begged them when before I left to think about the, the long term, not the short term. You know, do what they were supposed to do to support you know, policy decisions of this administration, but stay at EPA because they are what make things, things work. They provide the longevity that any administrator who wants to understand how to do the mission, to do the job that you were sworn to do, would actually want to know. And uh, so it's, it's not – I think the morale is not too good. Um, I, I think that's because they are very highly trained – terrific staff that are mission-driven. And if someone engaged them in the mission, no matter what the policy direction, they'd want to be a part of it. They'd want to be able to add value. And they're right now uh, simply unable to do that is certainly what I've read. And it seems to be getting worse all the time. As you pointed out, so the leadership is not consulting much with the staff at the EPA, the internal uh, science and internal expertise. Let's look to the outside for just a moment. Um, Also quoting here the New York Times, uh, an article from October 3rd, that was yesterday, uh, that highlighted Minister Pruitt's extensive meetings with industry executives Mm -hmm. while finding that he's met much less with environmental and public health advocates. That same article also noted 2014 when you were at the EPA in you know, finalizing the Clean Power Plan. It noted that during that time, your calendar was heavy with meetings with democratic lawmakers and environmental groups. What, in your view, is the correct balance for an administrator in meeting with industry, environmental, public health, and any other group? What's the balance that needs to be maintained? Well, I think if you read further, the article also indicates that I had considerable meetings with the private sector, with the utility groups, with energy regulators, you know, because I knew that the job that anybody has in my position is that you've got to listen and learn. You've got to have everybody's viewpoint. I am a person who has worked for five Republican governors and one Democrat. Okay, I know that there are a variety of opinions out there. So I met with I met with everybody, but I purposely 
made it my job to meet with the ones that were most impacted by any decision I was going to make because they need the loudest voice, right? So I met with a lot of environmental constituencies, a lot of, in particular, I met with what I consider to be environmental justice communities. Because when you're dealing with climate change, they're the ones on the front line. They're the ones most hurt. I tried to understand what their concerns were. How do we give them a voice in this discussion? I met with the mums groups that were all organized. The one thing you have to know is that the business community brings 20 people with them that represent 20 utilities and it counts as one meeting. Environmental groups aren't like that. They go on their own. So you end up with a lot of meetings. But there is no way that I believe that anyone could make the case that EPA did not do the most outreach under the time when I was administrator of any ever done, because I've done this for 37 years. If you don't seek out the people who disagree with you, you will never understand how to get them under the tent or short of that to figure out what they're going to do to burn that tent. So smart people reach out not just to people who will pat them on the back or congratulate them. They're the people that will challenge you, that will educate you, that will have something to say. And one of the most interesting things that I learned early on uh, with the working with utilities is really two things. One is they fight like crazy about new regulatory standards. The minute it crosses the finish line, they have already figured out how to make money on it. And frankly, in the United States what of America, that's exactly that's but but it's because they teach you about how to do it in a way where they can deliver energy effectively. Right. And and if you do a rule right, they they're ready to run. They're all competing with one another to do better. So you can ask them to run a hundred yard dash. They're going to be three quarters of a mile down before you actually thought they'd ever get to the end of the 100-yard dash, right? I love that. That's what the private sector brings to the table. They fight, but the, and they make their points known. If you're smart, you adjust, and then the race is fun to watch. The other thing that they reminded me, and one of the reasons why I think the Carnot Prize is of such value to me, is they basically, when we met, when I met with the utilities individually, the CEOs sort of as, as the EEI board and worked with them, which I met a, a lot of times, um, they basically reminded me every time that energy is a public health issue. You have to have energy access. We can see this now in Puerto Rico. You know, they need energy access to live well. And in a changing climate, you need it even more to protect people from the extremes that you're going to see in hot, in hot and cold, in our temperatures and everything in between. And so I, intern, I, I internalize that. My staff knew that. If they design that plan specifically with the idea that I am not going to sacrifice energy for the sake of environment, it is a false choice. And if you work for the public, you don't make them make that choice. And so it was, it was a, a, for me, it was eye-opening to meet probably even more with the people that didn't want the agency to take this position, that were worried that would go to extreme. And I know that when this 
clean power plan landed. We had done our job right when I was able to call utility CEOs and say, look at what we did in the final rule. Your input mattered. And they actually tremendously appreciated not just the outreach but the outcome. So I'm extraordinarily proud of it. And that's why the Cano Prize to me that focuses on energy means that I really did what I wanted to do. I didn't put blinder, bureaucratic blinders on. I didn't go to extremes that would threaten, you know, our ability to keep growing the economy. And I think that's the value that EPA has as being sort of the low man on the totem pole and the one that always gets whacked. You know, we know that the, the big things matter and our ability to take those into account. And we do it all the time. And it's, and it's, I think this administrator would do well and and I, this is the note I left them, is just work with the career staff. Get to understand what's going on because I think it can give you a totally different perspective about what, what the importance of the role that you play and why you need to get out of your own comfort zone. From the outside, it feels like the EPA is being politicized. What's your view on that? And I think even more, if that is the case, what does that do for the public trust in that agency and its ability to moving forward, effectively regulate. Yeah. Um, I, d- I do think people ha- have that sense that that the work of EPA is getting politicized. Um, I, I, you know, the thing I try to remind people of is that, you know, it was Teddy Roosevelt that created the national park system. You know, it was Republicans that were staunch conservationists which is fundamental to some of the work that EPA does. It was Richard Nixon who created the EPA by executive order, Richard Nixon. And, and when the, the Reagan administration tried to go too far in dismantling the protections at EPA, they paid a big price for that. And as a result, you know, George H. Bush was a champion of the 1990 Clean Air Act Amendment, which was a sweeping law that is probably the most successful public health statute ever written anywhere in the world. It has saved millions of lives as a result. So we need to remember that the environment and, and, and our core values of clean water and air and land are, are, are not, have not changed. We still believe that. And we have to understand that just because you can't see the pollution, it still exists. There are still lives lost. There are still 16,000 premature babies born every year in the United States as a result of their exposure to dirty air. We have 120-something million people in areas where the air isn't clean yet. We have 130,000 people that if you roll back the clean water rule will not have their drinking water protected because it relies on rivers and streams that haven't been protected. You know, we have big challenges ahead of us. Flint, Michigan, if that wasn't a wake-up call that we haven't even figured out how to keep lead out of our drinking water yet, never mind address the biggest source of lead, which is in the paint, in low-income areas because we can't figure out how to get that done. We have big challenges here. We need to face up to those challenges, and, and they, they cannot be the, the, the fodder for partisan bickering or rhetoric. It is just not fair to the public that we serve. And, uh, and, and so I, I really hope that, that um, 
the fact that we move forward on climate action doesn't give carte blanche authority for this administration to think that we need no protections at all. Because I don't think people will be pleased or the business community pleased with the uncertainty that means for the health of our children, the one in 10 kids that have asthma, the two in 10 Hispanic kids who have asthma. Uh, We need to just stop the rhetoric and really just get together and remind one another that we we all care about these core values and let's just get them in a way that that benefits people's lungs as well as their pocketbooks because you can do that now. It's available to us. Now is not the time to run away and deny that. It's the time to embrace it because the transition's happening and the United States ought to want that to happen at its highest level. Got a final question for you. So we've talked a lot of gloom and doom, but you've brought up, obviously, the very positive side that we can look for as well. Uh, In Congress for the last year and a half, in the House specifically, there has been uh, a group called the Climate Solutions Caucus, Mm. which now has over 50 members. Um, It is a caucus, bipartisan, equal number of Republicans and Democrats that are working together to find any variety of solutions to address climate change. Do you see a change in Washington, anything bubbling up that might indicate that we would see more cooperation and a breaking of this rigid uh, politicization of climate in this country? I'm hoping so. You know, I think I think that group is taking their obligation to look at climate in a nonpartisan way very seriously. Do I think that's going to result in a breakthrough in Congress right now? No, I really don't. Um, I think, but but what is is of is of great hope. In addition to this administration probably not being able to roll back things very effectively, um, is is the fact that you have cities in states that are really stepping up. You have the states in the regional greenhouse gas initiative. There are nine of them that are going to toughen their caps so that they eke more reductions through energy efficiency, renewable energy in their energy system. Those are Republican governors and Democrats, not just Democrats. You've got California that continues to expand their cap and trade program to more sectors and to getting more aggressive. You have signals being sent in internationally to the car industry that's basically saying, you better figure out electric you know, cars and get infrastructure or we're going to have our butts kicked by somebody else. You've got cities and towns that are saying we're still in in the Paris Agreement and they're actively moving forward. Cities are because you can't deny it. Do you think the city of Houston mayor wants to deny climate change? You know, can, can you really expect that to be, you know, wiped out by folks saying things in Washington? And remember, the most important thing, Andy, to remind the children here, I'm sorry, the young men and women here, it's, I just showed my age, is that, is that in the United States, there was n- really no visible action taken prior to the Obama administration on the issue of climate change. So don't judge our entire ability to survive and to thrive by the dramatic difference between the prior administration and this one, because it took huge amounts of grassroots efforts to ever 
address environmental issues, never mind climate change. It was only when community groups got together and says, I said, said as a group, I can't tolerate this anymore. I'm going to be obnoxious and I'm going to speak. I'm going to make my local folks actually have to be reasonable and take care of this pollution, take care of climate, or I'm not going to vote for them anymore. And they got active. Then it went to the state level because the states got got excited about the danger of all community groups stepping up and doing different things. Then when states got obnoxious, there was a worry about, oh, this patchwork of regulation at the state level is going to be undermining business, blah, blah. And then the federal government acts. So if you don't think you have a voice... In your own home, in your own community, in your own city, in your own state, that is meaningful at this point in time, you're wrong. So you don't have to sit around thinking we need to change the rhetoric in Washington for us to to maintain a steady, brilliant course towards clean energy, which this country is on right now. You just need to get active, participate, comment on rollback rules, get active, get excited, recognize that the future is in the hands of the, the young men and women that I met today. And they are the generation that, that folks like me who have been in public service has been working for, me in particular, for 37 years. They're going to they're gonna step up, but I want them to know that they have every ability to shape their own future. They cannot hand that to one person in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's just not happening. Gina, thank you for appearing on the podcast. It's been wonderful to have you here. Andy, it's been great. Thank you for doing it. I appreciate it. Today's guest has been Gina McCarthy, former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency under President Obama. Gina's at the University of Pennsylvania this week to receive the Carnot Prize for Distinguished Contributions to Environmental Policy and Energy Sustainability from the Climate Center for Energy Policy, which produces this podcast. You can learn more about events, research, and the latest news from the Climate Center by following our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now. Have a great day.